most gracious Father, as we gather to study your word now, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see the light of your truth, where you show us what is necessary for salvation. Oh Lord, lead us by the light of your truth. Teach us to walk in the light of your truth. Teach us to walk and obey your ordinances. And we pray, Lord, that Christ would be glorified in doing so. That Christ would be glorified in every aspect of our salvation. Oh, Father, use this time to strengthen us. Use this time to convict us. Use this time to humble us and to show us our great, great need for Christ. Show us, Lord, how lost we would be without him. Show us how lost we would be without your grace. That we would love you and obey you and live for you with a fuller devotion and that Christ would be glorified in that. Bless this time and use it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, please turn to uh, the book of John, the gospel according to John chapter three. We're going to be looking at verses one to eight today. John chapter three, verses one to eight. Um, This past week, as some of you may know, Millions and and millions, if not billions, of people around the world celebrated what is known as Ash Wednesday. Uh, And because it is my conviction uh, that the church should at least deny the necessity of traditions that are not mandated or specifically instructed in Scripture, uh, Lent and Ash Wednesday are uh, traditions that I have not participated in personally since I was in college. But the season of Lent, which begins with Ash Wednesday, which is a Roman Catholic holiday, I should add, it, it forced me to think. It forced me to think about why I'm a Protestant, why we are Protestants. Uh, And the indication of that term Protestant is, of course, that we are protesting. We're protesting something uh, huge. And and what is that? What, What are we protesting? We're protesting bad theology, really. If you want to boil it down to a nutshell, that is what we're protesting. There is nothing more worthy of our fullest protest than bad theology. As the one who started the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther's personal testimony is, I think, profitable or beneficial for us to consider. See, Martin Luther was raised as a very religious man. Uh, He was raised in a a religious household, in a religious um, culture. But he found that to be, he found his own religiosity to be very unsatisfying, very, very insufficient. He wanted more. And so what he did is he decided to, to, to scale the ranks. He decided to join a monastery and become a monk, thinking that if he did that, if he would learn to do just a little bit more, if he would learn to exercise just a little bit more discipline, if he devoted himself a little bit more entirely to the pursuit of purity and holiness, he would finally find that sense of divine contentment and assurance that he had been missing all of his life. And I hope that at this point, just even now, you're starting to see the parallels between the observation of Ash Wednesday and Luther's vain pursuit of purity. But anyway, of course, we know that as a monk... Luther actually found no contentment. It it didn't accomplish what he had hoped it would accomplish, at least not in the way he hoped it would be accomplished. He didn't have any assurance. He didn't have any reason to think that he was anywhere near the finish line in terms of uh, achieving purity or holiness, or that he was even close. Instead, what he found was that the Roman Catholic system of religiosity was just a treadmill of works, and that he was like a horse with a, with a carrot being just dangled in front of him. He, he was taught that he must work for his salvation. 
He has to, to, to observe the seven sacraments and, and do this and do that. Okay, okay, but how much? And at what point is it, is it ever enough? When would it ever be enough to even have just the slightest glimpse of assurance? And of course, the answer is never. It's never. It, it, it was never enough. And this is what drove Luther to the point of complete despair. And what a beautiful place that is. What a beautiful place it is for the unregenerate heart to be at the point where a person realizes that there is no hope, there is no assurance, there is no salvation if our salvation is to be based on our own works and our own goodness. See, when Luther turned to Scripture for answers, he found his answers. They were crystal clear, laid out in Scripture. He found that the Roman Catholic understanding of salvation is actually backwards. That is, they hold the the position that a person must first be sanctified, and then they will be justified. Let me me put that in plain terms. The Roman Catholic Church believed, and still believes to this day, that we must work for our salvation, and only when we do enough works can we be forgiven and received into heaven. And that is to say that Roman Catholicism denies that we must have a righteousness that is not our own. They deny that we must have a righteousness that belongs to somebody else but is credited or imputed to us. It denies what we Protestants refer to as the doctrine of imputation. Instead, what the Roman Catholic understanding of salvation necessarily causes a person to do is to look to themselves to make sure that they've got all the boxes checked. So they're they're looking to themselves, they're looking to their works for salvation. So they start to trust in themselves and in their faithfulness to do enough sanctifying works to be justified as something that you must earn. And if you know the Roman Catholic view, you know that they have the understanding that, that most people really just can't do this. And so they invented a place called purgatory where, well, you did a lot of works, but you didn't do enough to quite tip the scales and, and, and be saved. Uh, so it's a place of penance. It's a place where, where those scales can be tipped to the point where the individual's good works outweigh their bad works. Now, Ash Wednesday doesn't have to be about that. There, there are actually Protestants that observe Ash Wednesday, and, and I hope that that is not the, the mindset that they have as they observe it. Many who observe it do have a right idea of, or view of salvation, I have no doubt, but I also have no doubt that there are many, many more who do see it as a means of earning salvation, as a means of earning sanctification, a means of pursuing or gaining merit when they haven't first been justified. That is, they're still looking to themselves. They're still putting their trust in what they do rather than trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ, trusting in him alone for salvation. So my concern, at least, is that Ash Wednesday and Lent, because of the Roman Catholic theology that lays at the foundation of these holidays, uh, that this, um, this season, Lent, encourages people to put the proverbial cart before the horse, so to speak. So today, the passage that we're going to be looking at is very, very relevant to that subject. What we're going to be looking at is the beginning of what is probably, I can't think of another conversation that's more famous, this is probably the most famous conversation in all of human history. Think about that for a second and just let that sink in. We're talking about the most famous conversation, the most famous dialogue in all of history. There's not a movie, there's not a book. Uh, aside from the Bible, that has been more read, more studied, more considered, more debated for thousands of years. So we're going to read a com- about a conversation. We're going to read a conversation that took place between Jesus and a Pharisee, a man 
named Nicodemus. And what was the subject of this conversation? This very matter. The futility, the utter worthlessness of looking to and trusting in our own works for salvation. It's about the most dangerous thing in the world, friends. It really is. It's about the most dangerous thing in the world. Putting the proverbial cart before the horse in terms of one's salvation. Trying to work and work and work for sanctification when the person hasn't even been justified. And they haven't even considered their need to be justified. And that's the point of this passage. Before any sanctifying work can be done, a person must be born again. Before you can become more like Christ, that's only done by the power of the Spirit. And so before you can become like Christ, you must be born again. The background for this conversation we have to see is actually found in the previous chapter. Um, So so if you have your Bibles open to John chapter 3, if you glance through chapter 2, you see that Jesus went to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. And when he arrived, he found that the temple was filled with merchants uh, and, and that it looked really no different from the world. A worldly ideology had crept in. And so he made a whip of cords and he cleansed the temple, driving out the merchants, flipping over their tables And the religious leaders, once this was over, the religious leaders confronted him asking for a a sign to prove that he had the authority to do what he had just done. And yet, he refused to give them a sign, prophesying instead that the only sign they would get would be the resurrection from the dead. That if they take down that temple in three days, he will raise it back up, which, which was to come uh, as the only sign that they would receive of his authority. But then John tells us something very, very interesting, perhaps a little bit perplexing at the end of chapter 2. This is the passage that we looked at a couple weeks ago. We read this in verses 23 to 25. It says, now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing, but Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. That's very interesting. And if you remember, the word uh, entrusting, when it says that Jesus was not entrusting himself to people, it's a play on words. People are believing in him, but he's not believing in them. It's because they have a shallow, artificial faith. But keep this passage in mind as we continue, because it ends by saying he knew what was in man, and Nicodemus is a man. So let's continue. Let's look at verses 1 to 8 together. The word of the Lord says this, it says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless, you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Again, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So the previous passage ended by reminding us that Jesus knew what was in man. 
That's how chapter two ends. Now let's piece it together and let's not look at the chapter break for just a second. Remember, the chapter breaks are not inspired. Those were added much, much, much later. Uh, But let's piece it together now with the first few words from chapter three. Chapter two ends, he himself knew what was in man. Chapter three, now there was a man. See how those things tie together? If If you stop at the chapter break, you might miss the connection. This is a vital, vital connection. Nicodemus is representative of the people who saw Jesus doing these signs, who saw Jesus performing all these these miracles and believed in him, but failed to have a faith that he would accept. They failed to have a faith that he would entrust himself to. These were people who had a superficial faith, a, a fleeting faith, a faith that would not endure. When something more exciting came along, they they would go with that. There's a faith based on what Jesus could do, not a faith that was based on who Jesus is. And this describes the faith of Nicodemus. He too had a fragile, fleeting faith, a faith that Jesus would not accept, a faith that Jesus would not entrust himself to, a faith that did not Please him. And who would be a more worthy representative of a person who embraces an empty religiosity which sees Jesus as something to add to their already righteous and moral lives? Who would be a better representative than Nicodemus? Nicodemus, as a Pharisee, would have been extremely respected within the Jewish community as a Jewish leader. He was a teacher. He was one of their leaders. He was an example of moral uprightness. He was an example of of moral goodness and righteousness for all the people to follow, or so he undoubtedly thought, and many of them also probably thought as well. But on top of that, he would have been very well educated. He would have been an elite member of society. He would have had just a tremendous amount of influence and power and persuasion on things. As far as men go, as far as humanity goes, Nicodemus was not ordinary. In fact, he was extraordinary. He had the political clout that people dream of. He had a sharp mind. He had a righteousness that was of himself that the common man would have only dreamed of having. If anyone was qualified to represent empty and futile religiosity, it was Nicodemus. John immediately makes sure that we're aware of the fact that Nicodemus comes to Jesus not in a place where he can be seen, Not in the light of day, where others might see him approaching Jesus and having a conversation with Jesus, but John specifically tells us, he inserts this detail, that this conversation happened at night. Now, I am of the opinion that there are no irrelevant details in Scripture. Uh, No, every detail is significant. Uh, And and in fact, uh, the reason I think this is a significant detail is because this theme of of light versus darkness is a theme that gets more and more developed, even in this very chapter. If you look down at verses 19 and 20, we read this. Jesus says, "...the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And when you read that, our first thought after, after reading something like that should be to think to ourselves, because it's in such close proximity to the passage that we're looking at today, our first uh, instinct should be to think to ourselves, wait a minute, didn't Didn't John tell us that Nicodemus approached Jesus ah, in the darkness of night? So why does he approach Jesus at night? 
I mean, we're not told in terms of uh, specific details. Maybe it's because Nicodemus loves his sin, and, and he wouldn't want to soil his reputation for, for righteousness, this righteousness that he had of himself, by approaching Jesus in a time and place where others might see him. It at least seems possible, if not likely, that he did not want to put his, his power, his, his influence, his reputation on the line, uh, whether that be among the common man or among the Pharisees and the other ruling Jews. We don't know exactly why Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the darkness, but John specifically tells us that he comes at night. And so it doesn't seem to be an incidental detail. If it's an incidental detail, why even mention it at all? Well, it seems to be pretty important. Either way, immediately, Nicodemus, you have to understand, he starts from a position of authority, perhaps condescension. He says, Rabbi, again, this is maybe with a little bit of uh, condescension. I mean, think about it for a second. He's talking to a carpenter, and he calls him Rabbi. That would be quite a job promotion. Those two categories are in very different classes. So it seems that he's trying to tickle Jesus' ears maybe a little bit but he's also speaking down to him as somebody who is a teacher. So he says, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher for no one, this is very interesting, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus refers to Jesus as a rabbi, which is a teacher, someone who can feed your mind. Somebody who can feed your intellect. Somebody who can give you information. And in that way, he reminds us of so many other religious people who are perfectly comfortable with Jesus as long as he's just a teacher. But they don't recognize Jesus as God incarnate, and they certainly refuse to worship him as such. But he says, Rabbi, we know. Uh, Who is we? Who's he speaking on behalf of? Well, he seems to be speaking on behalf of at least a few other Pharisees who were there and saw what Jesus was doing. Maybe just a small handful of the ruling body of the Jews. And Nicodemus is saying that they have seen these miracles and in that they've recognized something about Jesus. That, number one, he's a teacher, and number two, that he's a teacher who has come from God And the reason he thinks that is because he's doing these signs. So we have to understand that the second observation in particular isn't just an intellectual observation of the material reality that he perceives. No, it is actually a very theological observation as well. And what we see here is that Nicodemus has some extremely messed up, wonky, flawed theology. Because he recognizes Jesus as a teacher because he's doing these miracles. But performing miracles doesn't mean that somebody's from God, does it? No, Deuteronomy 13 tells us this. It tells us that that miracles and signs don't prove that someone is of God. We read in verses 1 to 2, If a prophet or dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign, or a wonder, a miracle in other words, And the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. Skip down to verse 5. That prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from among you. So what does that tell us? It tells us that if somebody's doing miracles, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're from God. What does? What proves that somebody is from God? Faithful obedience to the one true living God, what he has revealed with his word. And so Nicodemus is way off here. And as a teacher of the law, he should know this. But I don't think he's extremely worried about theology at this point. In fact, I'm certain he's not. 
I'm convinced he's trying to make a power play here. I'm convinced that he's trying to tickle Jesus' ear. He's essentially saying, hey, you know, Jesus, teacher, um, this is Jerusalem, and things around here are a lot different than they are in Nazareth. You're going to, you know, if you're going to minister here, you're going to need some friends. You're going to need some people to back you up. You're going to need support. You should join us, the Pharisees. Now, Nobody is exactly sure where Nicodemus is going with this. He just kind of makes a statement, but he stops before he says anything or asks anything of, of any significance. So we don't know exactly where Nicodemus was going with this. Maybe he, he would have said something like that. You know, hey, Jesus, why don't you, you join us? Or maybe he wouldn't have. But the reason I think he was going in that direction is because Jesus interrupts him. Jesus cuts him off right there and changes the whole direction of this conversation. And he says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. See, if Jesus was nothing but a teacher, we have to believe that he probably would have really liked to have his ears tickled. He probably would have welcomed getting, you know, buttered up, so to speak, by Nicodemus recognizing him, not as a carpenter, but as a teacher. And not just as a teacher, but as a teacher sent from God. But what we have to understand is what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus here, as he interrupts him, is, Nicodemus, you have absolutely no idea what you're even talking about. See, whenever anybody came to Jesus in their sin, failing to recognize Jesus for who he is, we see him respond in very similar ways, don't we? I mean, think about the, think about the, the rich young ruler, for example. You know, think of the way Jesus responded to him or the, the way he confronted him. Why, why do you call me good? Only God is good. In other words, let's get the wheels in your, in your mind turning. He says, go and sell all that you possess and give to the poor. But when he has a conversation with the woman at the well, he offers her living water. When he encounters a man who is trying to be healed by an angel at the, at the waters in a pool of Bethesda, Jesus says to him, do you want to be healed? See, on the surface, these all might seem like kind of silly things to say, like, well, what does that have to do with what's going on? But what Jesus is doing in each one of these instances is confronting people about the futility of the things that they have put their confidence in, the worthlessness of the things that they are trusting in. And he's doing exactly that with Nicodemus. He says, truly, truly, which is as if to underline it. In modern day English, it would be the same as saying, dude, I say to you, I'm telling you, bro, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying that Nicodemus is spiritually blind. That he cannot perceive, he cannot receive, and so he cannot teach because he doesn't understand spiritual truth. With just one sentence, with just a few simple words, very powerful words, Jesus has obliterated, he's absolutely decimated everything that Nicodemus stood for, everything he trusted in, everything that he would have had to boast in, everything that he trusted for his own salvation. And with the same words, he refers to Nicodemus' desperate need for God by his grace to effect a change in the depths of Nicodemus' heart, in the depths of his very being. See, Nicodemus has the same view of salvation that the Roman Catholic Church has. That salvation is something we have to work for. I mean, just, just this week, an apparently, apparently fairly well-known uh, Catholic priest wrote this on Twitter. He said this, and you saw it if you, if you follow me on Facebook. He, he said, put down that bacon. Today is a day of fasting, abstaining from meat, and a day to begin the atonement for our sins. Get to Mass, keep the fast, enter in. Do you see that? 
Do, do, you see, do you see who they think atones for our sins? We do, according to the Roman Catholic view. That is blasphemy, friends. That is heresy. What a, a total and complete insult to Christ. So clearly the view here is that we must look to ourselves. Look to what you're doing. Get in there. Work harder. Do more. Be better if you want to receive salvation. Because the atonement offered by Christ, in their view, isn't good enough. It's insufficient. That's the view here. And it's a matter of getting salvation backward, putting the cart before the donkey. We all recognize there's a place for works, right? Faith without works is dead. But we're not saved by our good works. We're saved for our good works. If you want to look at yourself for anything, do so only to ask, am I doing this or that to be saved, or am I doing this because I've been saved? Huge difference. Do you see the difference between those two positions? Am I doing this so that God will accept me, or am I doing this because God, by His grace, has fully accepted me? Huge difference. And this is the error that so many fall into. They see Christianity as a set of propositions. They see Christianity as a set of ideas that can be added to their intellect, added to what they they already have. It's information that, that, uh, that might be useful for something. No, the gospel is not just a set of propositions. It's not information. It's not just something for your intellect. It's not information. It's for transformation. The gospel is the wisdom of God, not to be added to what you already have, but to completely replace everything that you have put your trust in. It's to replace your old life. It's to replace your your old ways of thinking, your old ways of living, your old ways of existing. See, what Jesus says to Nicodemus is obviously true. He didn't know what he was talking about. But why not? I mean, this is a Pharisee that we're talking about, so why doesn't he know what he's talking about? Because if you're not born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. He was spiritually blind. And this is the natural condition of humanity, friends. This is why the natural man cannot see, the natural man cannot receive, the natural man cannot understand even the simplest spiritual truth. It's foolishness to him. It doesn't make any sense. And so what Nicodemus needed and and what we need is not power, is not influence, is not respect, is not even self-esteem. No, what we need and what he needed was to be born again. And what Jesus said of Nicodemus, therefore, is true for every single one of us, for all of humanity. You must be born again. See, most people see religion as a way of maybe cleaning up your act, becoming a a better person, a a more moral person, an intellectually and spiritually informed person of, of becoming upright, respectable. But Jesus is saying, no, you don't need any of those things. In fact, those things are just standing in your way. You must be born again. Whatever you're trusting in, aside from Jesus, is preventing you from, from that, from, from putting faith in Jesus. You're trusting in the wrong things, is what he's saying. Now, let's consider this phrase, born again, because there is an enormous amount of confusion about how uh, it relates to salvation. See, the term born again can also be translated born from above. And we find the, the same Greek word that gets translated again, uh, translated as uh, from above, uh, five other times. The, the only five other times that that word is found in the New Testament, it's always translated uh, from above. Uh, in fact, if your Bible is open to John chapter 3, look down at verse 31. Jesus says here, he who comes from above, same word. He who comes from above is above all. He who is 
uh, of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. But there we see it. It's every other place it's translated as from above. So what do we have to understand then? We have to understand that the new birth that a person must have is from above. And isn't that the point that John made back in chapter 1 when he wrote this? He said, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. So of, of whose will must a person be born? His parents? No, John says not of blood, so we're not saved because of our ancestry. What about just having a genuine desire to be saved? No, no. John says, nor of the will of the flesh or of the will of man. How then? A person must be born from above, of God, as John says in chapter 1, verse 13. Now, you might be wondering, well, okay, that makes it really confusing then. Why do we translate it as born again instead of born from above? And that's, that's a good question. And the answer, I believe, is, is twofold. First of all, it is a legitimate translation of that Greek word. Uh, but secondly, and, and perhaps more importantly, uh, that's how Nicodemus interprets it. That's made evident in how he responds. He says, kind of with snark, uh, snarky intentions, I believe. He says, how can a man be born when he's old? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? I think he's trying to say, that's, that's a ridiculous idea, Jesus. Nicodemus, however, is thinking physically here. He's thinking in terms of Material. He's thinking naturalistically, but Jesus is speaking spiritually. And the natural man cannot understand the spiritual. So, so he's trying to figure it out. How can somebody be born a second time? That, that's, that's, that's a ridiculous idea, is what he's thinking. He understands, as we do, that, that it's, it's physically impossible. And in fact, the, the idea, the image that you get when somebody would be physically trying to be born again is, is really absurd, if not kind of, uh, kind of obscene. And so Jesus corrects his thinking once again, saying again, truly, truly, he's underlining it here. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now, there are some different ways of understanding this, this phrase, being born of, of water and spirit. Uh, some would say uh, that the idea is, uh, okay, the water represents baptism and the spirit represents uh, conversion. But first of all, there's nothing in the context to indicate that Jesus is talking about baptism. Uh, but more importantly than that, we're not saved by baptism. We're not saved by water, right? We're not saved by any work. We're not saved by any ritual or practice that we do. We're saved by works, but not works that we do. Another view is that the water refers to natural birth coming from, from your mother, uh, and the spirit refers to spiritual uh, birth. I'd say this is probably the most popular view, uh, but I don't think it's the best view because Jesus isn't talking about two separate events here. He's not talking about two separate things. As one commentator notes, quote, in the Greek text, the grammatical structure of water and the spirit indicates a single event, not two different births. So I'd say that we also need to see what Jesus says down in verse 10. He, he, he's, he's helping us understand here what it means to be born of uh, water and spirit. In verse 10, Jesus says this. He says, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? In other words, as a teacher of Israel, you, Nicodemus, above anybody else, you should understand what I'm talking about here. 
So we have to understand that there's something specific from the Old Testament that Nicodemus should have recognized Jesus was referring to when he refers to being born of water and the Spirit. And indeed, Jesus' answer does correspond directly with the promise of the new birth that we find in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 27, where we read this. God says this. He says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, This is the new birth. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will clean you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances." This is what it means to be born again. This is what it means to be born from above. And according to what God says through the prophet Ezekiel, who does all the work? God does. Specifically, yes, Jesus, Jesus does. But where is man's role in here? It's, it's nowhere. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. This is what's necessary for salvation. This is what's necessary to have a righteousness that is acceptable to God. The new birth is, uh, the, the, the birth from above is what's necessary for salvation, and the new birth is entirely the work of God. It's the sovereign work of God. What God requires, this is an important principle, what God requires, God always supplies. What God requires, God always supplies. And I understand that this is a very hard truth for us. Because it's very easy for us to approach Christianity. It's very easy for us to approach the gospel like we approach any other proposition. But the gospel is not like any other proposition. It's not like anything else. The gospel is, is, it can't be compared to anything that we can weigh and consider and add to our intellect or, or not. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. Now, if this was the only statement we would have from God, all we could do is despair. Because if nobody can understand the gospel, if nobody can understand their need to trust in somebody else's righteousness. We're all just lost. We have no hope. But that's not all we have. We have Jesus explaining the new birth here. So apart from God's regenerating work, imparting spiritual life to us, the gospel is foolishness. And the idea of God sending His only Son to die in the place of anyone and everyone who will repent and believe in Him, it's just nonsense. The natural man would say, that's a stupid idea. There are better ways to save people. So for the person who is spiritually blind, like Nicodemus, and unregenerate, like Nicodemus, the gospel, to the extent that they can begin to, to understand something about it, is irrational at best and utter insanity at worst. So how then does a person come to believe the gospel? Something that is impossible, Paul tells us, impossible for a natural man to believe. And the answer is, you must be born again. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. You must be born again. You must be born from above. God must remove your heart of stone that would not move, that would not respond to Him, that would not love Him. And He must replace that 
with a heart of flesh. He has to take out the rebellious heart that we're all born with, and he has to replace it with a heart that is not rebellious, but that is inclined to love him and to obey him. He must put his spirit within you. Paul continues in in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in verse 16, he says this, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? That's what's necessary for us to understand these things. Who has has known the, the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ, he says. See, until someone is born again, they can't understand the gospel. They won't believe the gospel. Nicodemus is a righteous person. He's a moral person. He's a very intelligent person as far as people go. But until God worked by his grace, by his sovereign grace, to remove the heart of stone and replaced it with the heart of flesh, putting his own spirit, God's own spirit within him, he could not actually grasp these spiritual truths. And this is entirely the work, the sovereign work of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. The flesh does not produce what is spiritual. That's what Jesus is saying. You can't have spiritual life that starts with you because you start with only flesh. Flesh produces flesh. The Spirit, capital S, gives life to the Spirit. I mean, think about it this way. How many of you made a decision to allow your mother to give birth to you? How many of you protested? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, maybe a couple hands. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody does. Of course not. We, we understand that that is a ridiculous thought, right? No one in all of human history has ever made that choice. I mean, how much credit do you get to take for being born physically? The reason the analogy to birth works here, to to physical birth works here, is because nobody can take credit for being born spiritually either. The first birth wasn't your own doing, neither is the new birth. As Romans 9.16 says, So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Think of it this way. If salvation is your own doing, if, if you even play 1% in it, you have something to boast in, in yourself. I mean, if this is just a set of propositions, if this is just a bunch of ideas, information that we can choose to add to our intellect, then it's, it's, it's like deciding to agree that one plus one equals two, while most of the other people in the world uh, dismiss that and come up with a different answer. So when the teacher says, uh, well, great, you got the right answer. One plus one is two. Who got the right answer? Who gets the credit? Who gets to boast? But Scripture is clear from cover to cover on this issue that we have absolutely nothing to boast in. There is nothing in ourselves to boast of. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not that of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as the result of works, so that no one may boast. The reason we can't boast is because none of it relies on us. None of it was our own doing. It was God's doing. However you came to Christ, friends, it was by the grace of God. God opened the eyes of your heart to see the light of his truth, to see your need for a savior, things that the natural man cannot understand and will not believe. It was entirely the supernatural work of God. Scripture instructs us, therefore, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So Nicodemus, he's puzzled. He he can't make any sense of this. He's he's very perplexed. He's he's accustomed to to having all this information, being able to, to dialogue on a spiritual level, or what he believed was a spiritual level, with people. He's accustomed to being a person who had a lot to boast in. But he can't make any sense of what Jesus is saying here. 
And so Jesus says to him again, do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. I have to believe that the reason he said that, do not be amazed, is because Nicodemus was sitting there and flies were going in and out of his mouth. It was open so wide. What? He didn't get it. So Jesus says, don't be surprised. It's all in the Old Testament. The new birth is, is, is prophesied in the Old Testament. And as you consider these things, you might be inclined to ask yourself, how can I even know if I'm born again? And Jesus actually tells us right here. Look what he says in verse 8. He says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So first of all, we can't miss the fact that Jesus again points out that man plays no role in the new birth. The wind blows where it wishes. He's likening the wind to the work of the Spirit, which, by the way, should bring your mind a little bit back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. But secondly, Jesus is pointing out that the presence of the wind, while like the work of the Spirit, can't be seen directly, it can be seen indirectly. Think of it this way. How do you know when it's windy outside? Well, you see trees blowing or whatever. What if there are no trees or any things to blow around? And you look outside, how could you possibly know if it's windy? You're inside, so you're in a place where there is no wind, and you look outside, how could you know if there are no trees uh, that it's windy? You might say, well, you can, you can hear it. But you don't observe it directly. You don't see when the wind comes or goes. You, you, you see the effects of the wind, but you don't see the wind itself. And likewise, Jesus is saying that you can't physically observe the new birth, but all who are born from above will demonstrate the effects of the Spirit in their lives. See, the new birth is the imparting of a new nature. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, a new creation. You're not the same person you were born as. You're, you're not who you were before the new birth once you've been born again. You're different. You have an entirely new nature, an entirely different nature. You don't have the rebellious nature anymore. You might have the rebellious habits. You do have the rebellious habits. But you don't have the rebellious nature. You have the Spirit of God dwelling within you, convicting you of sin and strengthening you to obey God, imparting to you the very desire to obey God. Natural man doesn't desire to obey God. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13 says, It is God who, at, who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. But above and beyond all that, the way to know if somebody is truly born again, to know if they are truly born from above, is that they no longer look to themselves for salvation. They no longer put their trust in who they are or what they've done or what they can boast in. But they understand that their only hope is the substitutionary atonement of Christ on their behalf. They understand that we cannot atone for our sins. If we want to try to atone for our sins, there's a place for that. It's called hell. J.C. Ryle said this. He said, quote, A man who is born again or regenerated believes that Jesus Christ is the only Savior who can pardon his soul, that he is the divine person appointed by God the Father for this very purpose, and beside him there is no Savior at all. In himself he sees nothing but unworthiness, but he has full confidence in Christ. And trusting in him, he believes that his sins are all forgiven. He believes that because he has accepted Christ's finished work and death on the cross, he is considered righteous in God's sight. And he may look forward to death and judgment without alarm. End quote. Friends, is that you? Is that you? As you examine your, your heart, as you examine your life, as you examine what you, what you trust in, do you want Christ? Do you even want him? Do you love him? Do you, do you trust in his work? Not your own. I mean, do you trust in him completely? Not, not one foot on his work, one foot on your work. Do you put both feet on his work? See, you might be a very moral person. 
great. You must be born again. You might be a very intelligent person, but you must be born again. You might be a very influential person, but you must be born again. So as you examine your life, does does your life attest to the reality of the new birth? Friends, if your answer is no to any of these questions, I implore you, I, I, I beg you now to consider how important this issue is. I urge you to see that trusting in yourself, trusting in what goodness you have, what morality you have, in what works you've done, that is a sure road to hell. But to trust entirely in Christ's goodness, to trust entirely in the work that He did on behalf of all who will repent and put their faith in Him, that is the only way to heaven. So friends, if if you say no or or just maybe to some of those questions of self-examination, if you hear the voice of the Good Shepherd today calling you to come to Him and to stop trusting in yourself, to stop trusting in your works, to stop boasting in what you've done or who you are, but to trust in Him, to come to Him, I would urge you to forsake all confidence in yourself, all confidence in the flesh, and to come to Him today in faith, begging that He would just be merciful unto you, a sinner. And He will receive you. He said, all who come to Me, I I will certainly not cast out. Friends, religion can't save you. Baptism can't save you. Your works, your best deeds cannot save you. Going to church cannot save you. Praying cannot save you. Reading your Bible cannot save you. As a pastor, I cannot save you. But Jesus can. And if you will come to Him in repenting faith, He will. If you'll come to Him and say, not my works, but all yours, He will. He will. And the new nature is yours. Eternal life is yours. If your answer to these self-examining questions is yes to all of them, praise the Lord. Praise only the Lord. And worship Christ as your King, as your, as your Lord, as your Savior, your Redeemer, your Healer, your Substitute. Boast of Boast of His goodness, boast of His mercy, boast of His grace, boast of His unmerited love and the work that He's done in you. Boast of His cleansing power. Boast in the Lord. Let him who will boast, boast in the Lord. Rejoice in the new life that you have in Christ and treat it for what it is, a gift to be greatly treasured and used for the glory of Christ. Because of the new birth, we can, we will. It's by God's grace, and we wouldn't want it any other way. Let's pray. Most gracious Father, in a passage like this, We see the depths of your mercy, the heights of your grace, our desperate need for the new birth, our desperate need for you to send a substitute to stand in our place to atone for our sins because we can't. It would take us all of eternity plus some. So thank you that by the new birth we're able to see not only how great our need is for Christ, but we're able to understand the gospel. We're able to receive the gospel. We're able to be changed by the gospel. Transformed all by your your grace, all by your mercy. Teach us, O Lord, to walk humbly before you in light of this truth to see our lives for what they are. They belong to you entirely. 
we were once slaves to sin. And you made us slaves to Christ, servants of our Lord. We thank you, Lord, for receiving us as your children, for imparting to us spiritual life, for imparting to us spiritual sight that we may behold spiritual truths. And that by the power of your Spirit living within us, we would grow more and more like Christ. What a great gift. Something we could never, ever repay. But we pray, Lord, that our lives would reflect this truth. That you live in us. That you have changed our desires. That you've even changed our nature. You've changed our hearts. You've traded out the heart of stone and you've given us a heart of flesh that can respond. Hearts that beat for you and for your glory. May Christ be glorified in our lives. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.